Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles, would you, to Genesis chapter 19. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 15. In a Bible study I've entitled, Even in Judgment, There's Mercy. Even in Judgment, There's Mercy. And we find ourselves here in chapter 19 with a focus upon the city of Sodom, but more importantly upon Lot and his wife and family. Sodom is a city filled with wickedness, iniquities, immoralities, perversities. It's always mentioned in a negative light in the Bible because it represents that that lifestyle of sin. More than just the sexual sin of homosexuality, uh, Sodom is known for its pride and its arrogance, haughtiness, a city filled with abundance and idleness, and all of it contributed to its destruction. Notice with me in verse 15 in chapter 19, when the morning dawned and the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, mark that word, while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. And notice, the Lord, Jehovah, being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. And then Lot said to them, please know my lords. I want you to notice in verse 16 that Lot is reluctant to leave this city. He is yet to see the full destruction that it's done in his life, even, even how God has sent him messengers. I, I think what a great contrast we're learning in the book of Acts recently, where Philip receives an angelic visitation and he immediately obeys. Here, Lot receives an angelic uh, invitation and he continually resists, even to the point of lingering, even to the point of begging that the city would not be destroyed, that he would not have to leave. And I want you to mark this word, he lingered. The city had invaded him. He wasn't just any longer, he was no longer just a resident, but he had made his home in Sodom. And an important thing we need to remember in our lives is that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. We have been delivered from this world. You know, Lot, he had also been delivered from this world because it didn't start out this way. He didn't start out in Sodom. He started out in great abundance and blessing with Abraham, but he was given the choice. And instead of following that place of respect and honor of Abraham and saying, no, 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 I'm not going to choose where to live. That's not the right order. You're my elder. You choose, or even you choose first or you choose for me. None of that. He says, oh, I get the first choice. And he immediately chose that which caught his eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And we're reminded again 
Church, hear me out. This word lingered. The attitude of Lot, as we'll see, continue. The whole chapter is so, such a sad chapter in the Bible. But we're reminded again that Lot's progression into carnality is a warning for us all. I have found, and certainly you've probably seen it yourself, that Christians rarely, Christians rarely are captured by the world quickly. It's, a, it's rare for, 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 like today, I just, if we were to take a survey today of everyone's here that's taken an extra step of their lives, an investment of a cold evening to sit in Bible study, to be available to the Holy Spirit, to serve the person that's next to you, pray together. I mean, just really press in, understand the times, desire great things from God, willing to, to step in and go the extra mile. I mean, on and on you could say what a simple commitment to an extra time of Bible study. It's not just sitting here to study the Bible. You could do it at home with a hot chocolate, you know, listen on the radio, but you've taken even an extra step to be with people, to make yourself available. If we were to take a survey and take your name and take your number and just check on you, check in on you next week, just next week, I doubt that anyone among us is going to flip so quickly from stepping into and wanting to worship God and then next week be so in love with the world that you're going to resist an angelic visitation and uh, sell your daughters out and all. I, I doubt that it's going to happen in a week. And if it did happen in a week, if by chance, and our prayer is that it doesn't, but if it did happen in a week, we did a survey of everyone that's here right now. We did a survey and go, okay, we're missing one. What happened? Oh, you won't believe so-and-so. He went back into the world and, and he went back harder than he did the first time. And man, we got to get in there and rescue him, do an intervention because it's so bad. I'm like, bro, it's just like seven days. What happened? And as we investigate, we find out, no, it wasn't seven days. It was actually a very small but insignificant compromise after compromise that actually was seemed insignificant, but it was extremely significant because it was over time that we just saw it in seven days. Rarely do Christians just jump off the edge in a week. But rather, it starts by entering into places of danger with little steps and what we might call small compromises. And you know with Lot, most likely it started for him in Egypt. His time in Egypt, when there with Abraham, the allure of power and unbelievable opulent wealth caught his eye. And just perhaps that little thought that I want this Took, took root in his heart and continued to grow and grow until he had the opportunity. Maybe not Egypt, but Sodom and Gomorrah could fulfill that. The world had invaded his heart. I want you to see this. Hold your place in Genesis. Turn back or flip on your phone or your iPad over to 1 John chapter 2. I want you to hear this, see it, read it, cross-reference it with this section in Genesis 19, it's for us here physically today. You guys listening on the radio, watching online, podcasting this later. It, the, the Bible means what it says. God means what he says, and he says what he means. This is a truth of the scriptures. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Don't dismiss it. Don't account it to some pastor preaching from the, you know, all legalistic on you and, and coming down on you and condemning you and, and traumatizing you and all these words of it. Like, just take it for what it says. Receive it from God. And this is God's word to you. Do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, and he who does, but he who does the will of God abides forever. This is allowing the word of God to fill the room right now and go forth. There are certainly people that don't believe this. Maybe even here. You just don't believe it. You think in your mind that it is okay to love a part of the world, to take it into your closeness, into your bosom perhaps, and, and kind of coddle it and take it. It's not that bad. It's not that difficult. It's not bad as you say, Pastor. I can handle it. I have freedom. I've heard it all. I've even made some of those sinful mistakes myself. But the Bible is true in all of its words. And, and let me just remind you, uh, you, you know this, I repeat it over and over again, compromise only leads to more compromise. But let me give you another perspective on sinful compromise. And by the way, just by way of clarification, when we talk about compromise, com not all compromise is bad. So there is a compromise. For example, when you are arguing with someone and, and it's just something that you're just butting heads continually and you both choose to meet in the middle and compromise so that you can resolve something, that, that's not necessarily sinful. That's not what we're talking about here. Where you're working to meet with someone, dying to yourself, that, that's not what the Bible means with compromise. It's not what I mean by compromise. What I speak of compromise is taking those little steps that seem insignificant, but you know they're wrong or they're not quite right, or they are, they're just, you just know this is sin and you might get away with it. Like that's the sinful compromise. That's what I'm talking about. And compromise, even little ones will lead to more compromise. That's the path you choose. But now I want to add another perspective to you that seems simple enough, but let me just say it out loud. Compromise will end in one of two ways. Your compromise will end in one of two ways. Way number one, your compromise will end in repentance and you will stop and you will be rescued from further damage. Now, who knows what the consequences might be? Who knows what you might have, what God may be incredibly merciful to you and you will be rescued and you'll just learn your lesson. Compromise, number one, can end and should end in repentance. But number two, as we learn here in this long road of Lot's life, the second way compromise ends is through destruction. That's when it'll end. You will compromise until you destroy yourself. You destroy your reputation. You destroy your character. You destroy those that love you. The wages of sin is always death. No, no way around that. Repentance will rescue you. Unrepentance will destroy you. And that's what we see with Lot. Notice verse 19. Verse 19, indeed now, back in Genesis, indeed now your servant has found favor in your, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, the city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? 
and my soul shall live. Again, this is a Bible study in and of itself, but this is a beautiful thing that God is doing, being merciful to Lot. He's calling him from the sinful city of Sodom to the mountaintop. And you Bible students know that so often the mountain or the mountaintop is a place where God calls you to himself and meets you personally there. This was an invitation from God. I want you to run to the mountains. The city life is not for you, Lot. The city life, it's not just Sodom and it's not just Gomorrah. It is, the city life is not for you. It is not going to help you. But notice Lot, he's like, I know I can't have Sodom, but can I have something smaller? Can I have a smaller version? I mean, think of the resistance and where his heart is. I know you've been merciful to me. I know that you're rescuing me. I know that you've saved my life, but can you still give me what I want? which is the exact opposite of what Jesus modeled for us, even in his own prayer. Not my will, but thy will be done. I mean, a study in the life of Lot is very sad and very difficult because another thing we learn with Lot is, is that God has given him a way of escape and he doesn't want to take it. It says here in verse 19, mark these words, but I cannot escape to the mountains. And it reminded me, that word today, or yesterday when I was putting this together, it reminded me of a word, escape. Let me show you in the New Testament. Again, turn over with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because we find this word escape is used here, and I often find people being given the freedom and a way of escape, responding the same way Lot does. I cannot escape. But God is ready to help you escape, ready to deliver you. He gives you a way of escape. Notice with me in verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful. Mark that. God is faithful when you face temptations. God is faithful. He is not unfaithful when you face temptations. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. However, he will give you with the temptation, he will also make the way of, what does your Bible say? The way of escape that you may be able to bear it. With every temptation, God makes the way of escape. And yet, many times our response is, I cannot escape. God, in his mercy, provides the way of escape. And we respond, I cannot escape. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10, this is one of those verses that is often misunderstood and misquoted and misused. You might have misquoted it this way. You might have heard it misquoted and misused to you. Someone will come with the truth that we just learned and they will share with you something like this. God will never give you anything more than you can handle. And then they'll quote this. That is not what this verse is saying, number one. Number two, it is not true. God allows all the time things into our lives that we can't handle. He sends things into our lives that we can't handle. I mean, he makes things in our body involuntary because we couldn't handle, remember, breathing every moment of every day. And we couldn't remember to have our heart keep beating, especially when we fall asleep. Of course, there are things beyond our control and more than we can handle. 
God will often allow things in our lives that will draw us away from the weakness of our own strength to his strength. I mean, how else will God bring brokenness into our lives? How else would God bring greater humility into our lives? How else would God bring true contriteness? How will we ever to truly learn how to rest in him, abide in him, and trust in him when everything around us are so out of control if there weren't things in our lives that are beyond our control? No, this word of comfort isn't about things that are, God will never give us more than you can handle. That's not it at all. The word in this text is, is when things are in your life, including temptation, that seems like you can't handle it. God will give you the way of escape so that you can. God will give you the way of escape. You don't have to bear it. He will deliver you. And yet you sound just like Lot. And I sound just like Lot. When I respond, I cannot escape. I can't help it. God has delivered you. And it's not merely, I cannot escape. It then becomes, I will not escape. I choose this. I want this. I find coming back to Genesis chapter 19, there's great mercy, even though Lot is still wanting to choose for himself. Just like he did with Abraham. Hey, there's a city close. And verse 21, he says, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I'll not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. God was even merciful, allowing, he'll take whatever Lot has to offer. Like, God will work with what, he, he'll give, what you give him. God will work with even the smallest even in resistance, God will work. And I, I think that there is a, uh, an importance that we understand the character and the nature of God here where God does deliver Lot. He does get him out of the city before the judgment. God does and is able to make a distinction between believer and unbeliever. And that's an important principle to learn in the scriptures because we can easily forget that God is able to tell who follows him and who doesn't. We don't always, we can't always tell that, but God is able to tell. You'll remember when God flooded the earth, he spared Noah and his sons. When hailstones fell in Joshua chapter 10, they didn't touch the Israelites. God made a distinction over and over the Bible says, Peter would put it this way in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And there is coming a day of judgment on the earth. There is a day coming, a day of judgment. The Bible calls it the great tribulation period, the last seven years of recorded human history. The Old Testament, you often hear it referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble or the 70th week of Daniel, which we've studied in other Bible studies. God will judge the world as he promised. But the Bible says in the Great Tribulation, he will also make a distinction there as well. And I think you know by now, both in study and by experience, 
that Christians, you and I, we, we suffer, go through tribulations, go through difficulties. John 16, in this world you have tribulation, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We suffer in this world. We're not exempt to the everyday trials of life, but in the great tribulation period, it will be God, not the world, will be the source of judgment. You and I, we, we suffer the judgment of living in a sin-soaked world. We suffer the pain of our own sin or the sin of someone else. But in the great tribulation period, it is referred to as the wrath of God or the wrath of the Lamb. And there is a distinction between believer and unbeliever. God, according to his nature, will remove the righteous before he judges the wicked. And again, I think these beautiful truths about God's delivering power God's ability to to give the distinction of believer and unbeliever, God's willingness to show mercy, God's willingness to extend grace, God's willing to deliver even rebels. I mean, because if there is a difficult passage in the Bible to understand, it would be, and we'll see in the rest of this chapter, it would be Peter's assertion that Lot was righteous. Because I think even in our modern day, we have a definition of righteous that means you're just perfect and you're the best little Christian and you say the right things and you do the right things and you make all the right decisions. And we certainly know that's not true for any of us. If that's the definition of righteous, there's not a righteous one in the bunch today. There's not a righteous one outside of this. Like the body of Christ, we're all still tainted by sin and difficulty. So we know that the definition of righteous is different than what we would assert. And Lot, in all his failures, somewhere deep within, had a true love for God. And that's hard for us to to really take sometimes because we get really high-minded. We get very condemning of others. We can be very quick to judge behaviors and outward things in people's lives. And we start to impose upon others our definition of righteousness and goodness. There'll be those listening right now, probably yelling at me on the radio right now. Oh, then you're just going to make sin easy and you're going to, you're teaching easy believism and I can hear it already. And you just misunderstand the grace of God. I'm not advocating sin. My whole life has been spent begging people not to sin. My whole life has been helping people, at least as a believer, recover from the effects of sin. Trying to put pieces back together. I'm not at all advocating the Bible teaches easy believism. I'm not at all advocating that the Bible would teach it's okay to sin. I mean, I can almost hear Paul yelling, you know, that, uh, and, and here resonating in my heart, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. <laughs> the Bible couldn't be clearer. But I'd ask you to step back and just consider for a moment if you've been missing the point with someone because their behavior offends you. If you've been missing the point with someone because, I mean, I, I, mean, I'm re- I read this chapter. I was reading it all day yesterday. I read it again today, just kind of saturating it. And I'm so mad at Lot. I don't know how. I don't, I'm just so upset with him. How could you do this? I mean, why didn't you listen before? You had Abraham. Like you could go on and on and on and on. But from God's perspective, he's showing mercy to Lot. I mean, Lot's in eternities. He's like, all right, now it's okay, Ed. Everything's fine. The Lord's good. He's faithful. He's gracious. He's good. And I just think the, the navigation, 
what God is going to really use in the days in which we live is his agape love is going to break down barriers in people's lives. And his agape love is going to be seen, not, not just taught, but it's going to be seen through you and me yielded and abiding in Christ. We will have to deal with behaviors for sure. And we will need to bring a biblical standard or a godly standard into people's lives, yes. But I think maybe you reading this chapter, you get mad at Lot. If you're not mad at Lot yet, stick with me. And you stick with me. If you weren't mad at Lot for offering up his virgin daughters to be raped by the men of the city, if that didn't get you angry, then we've got a few more things for you to get angry with Lot. If it didn't upset you, if the evil of this world doesn't upset you, then just go back into your prayer closet and ask God for eyes to see the pain and the sorrow and the children and the people being taken advantage of by the sin of this world. But I'm reminded today in my own life that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So it's one thing to be angry, but my anger is not going to produce the righteousness of God. I need to learn to yield myself to the Holy Spirit so that I can deliver the truth in love. And that's many times easier said than done. God is able to make a distinction. He will make a distinction. And again, I think all of these beautiful attributes of God get all, they, they get set aside because people want to argue about the rapture and they want to argue about where it is and when it happens and if it does happen. And you can talk, you can hear people and see people typing and posting and they can go on and on and on arguing about the rapture and forget about the grace and the mercy and the deliverance of God. His offer, even today, we're not even in the great tribulation period. The rapture hasn't even happened yet. And even today, God's ready to show mercy on your life. In this moment, he's able to rescue you and give you the way of escape. And even still today, there are those listening. I, will not, I cannot escape. I will not escape. I want what I want. Well, notice in verse 23. Then the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar, and the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him. And she became a pillar of salt. Again, another passage of scripture, the whole truth of Sodom and Gomorrah is a familiar place where the skeptics and the critics of the Bible like to come to. But you know, archaeologists have found great evidence of pitch and sulfur throughout the plains of Zoar. Even Josephus in his writings, he wrote that God sent a thunderbolt to the city to set it on fire, probably the burning sodium sulfate the brimstone and fire that was raining down on what was covered in destroying that city. And as the city is destroyed, exactly what God said, as God withheld judgment until, this, until Lot was delivered, another great picture of the rapture, judgment will come after the righteous delivered. You have verse 26. 
But then there's Lot's wife. We've learned about what's happening with his daughters, but then there's Lot's wife. You see, she looked back to what was attractive and perhaps looking back with longing eyes like my house, my car, my life, my position of status. Remember Lot sat in the city gates. He was a, a, a authority there. He was in a position of prestige. She sought to save her life, but just like Jesus teaches, those who seek to save their life will what? Lose it. And she was judged severely for looking back. I mean, think of Lot here. And we're not even done with the chapter yet. Remember back how this all started? He had so much that his servants were fighting with Abraham servants who had so much. He, he was writing the coattails of blessings of what God was doing in Abraham's life. It wasn't his own effort. His whole life was grace. He was there with Abraham and he was enjoying it all. He was living the high life and in the friction and the difficulty, it was Abraham that said, we can't have this anymore. We've got to separate. So you go ahead and choose. And Lot, he chose the area of Sodom and he took everyone with him and all of his stuff. And now we're here. And what happened in Lot's life? All that Lot gained by living in Sodom was lost. It doesn't say he took anything out with the exception of his family, his daughters, at least the ones that came, not the ones that the other daughters that were married and the sons-in-laws, they didn't come because he had lost credibility with them. So they were judged. He lost them. Lost all of his servants. No mention of them coming out. All of his stuff. All gone. Burned up. In an instant. Couldn't take it with him. And he lost not only his credibility, but he lost his wife. And if you're taking notes, I just want to give you a few things about some lessons from Lot's wife. Things that we need to consider before we move on to the rest of the text. Number one, in your life, we learn from Lot's wife, in your life, don't look back. That seems simple enough. <laughs> really doesn't need much, not much explanation, but for the sake of our time today, just remember what Jesus said. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Don't look back back. Put your hand to the plow. You're on a mission, on a straight and narrow path. New creations in Christ. Nothing in value in the lives we left behind. We now live for, and we now live in, and we now live by Jesus. Don't look back to your old habits. Don't look back to your old ways. Don't look back to your old friends. Don't look back to the old things in the life that you once lived. Look forward to that upward, onward crawl of Christ Jesus and the will of God in your life. Number two, something else we learned from Lot's wife. Husbands, in particular, your decisions affect your wives. And I know we can make applications, wives, your decisions affect your husbands and such. Your parents, we've already talked about parenting, you can make that. But I want to make in particular, husbands, your decisions affect your wives. We've already talked about raising children, but husbands, you're the spiritual leader of the home. 
And yeah, you might be more mature than your wife and you can handle something, but, but can your wife handle it? Like, oh, I can handle it, but can your wife handle it? You know, Lot was delivered, so was his wife, but she needed one more look. Lot wanted to compromise in another city, but she just wanted one more look because she couldn't handle it. She accommodated herself, she followed her husband, she did what, but she couldn't handle it. She lost her life as a result of Lot's sin. You go, wait a minute, Ed, what about her personal responsibility? Yes, she had a personal responsibility. But if you think, just trying to make excuses here, if you think that your wife will not be affected by your unspiritual decisions, remember Lot's wife. Ladies, wives, you are responsible. God isn't relieving you of your responsibility. But God has placed the leadership of the home upon the husband. And there is no good reason or excuse for us to be bad husbands in the home, especially with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Thirdly, what do we learn from Lot's wife? We learn the important principle, don't seek to save your life. Let me show you what I mean in Luke chapter 17. Turn over to Luke if you want, or I'll just turn there and read it to you. Luke chapter 17, in verse 29. It says, it really in verse 28, Likewise as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in that day... When the Son of Man is revealed that he was on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, there is one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. And then he says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Don't forget that verse is in the context of Lot's wife. Forever remember that. He says, don't seek to save your life. Because of Lot's wife. Again, since you're in Luke, you want to turn over just over to Matthew chapter 16. The pathway of discipleship is a great reminder here. We just stay on the narrow path. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, here's the key. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, let's read on. Come back to Genesis. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 28, and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of the furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow and when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. And remember earlier, Abraham was pleading with God and praying for the city and praying for about, hey, will you judge the city? And he went through all those numbers of righteous people. The the Destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, with the exception of Lot, his wife, and his daughters, just goes to show you there wasn't even 10 righteous people in Sodom. Because judgment came. Not even 10. 
Well, verse 29, or excuse me, verse 30, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. He's all caught up in himself. Thought that would be the right place to be. It's all caught up. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we'll lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it happened on the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. They made their drink, father drink wine that night also. The younger arose, lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Lot lost his wife to sin, physically, literally, to death. And now we see he lost his daughters. And they followed right along in mom and dad's footsteps. And this sinful, twisted plan to keep the family line. I don't, again, I don't want you to forget where Lot came from. He came from a great place of blessing and honor uh, in the shadow of his uncle Abraham. And now he's depressed and drunk in a cave. That's what he's been reduced down to. He's lost everything. And now he's depressed and drunk in a cave. And I want to be careful here. I don't think uh, the New King James does the right translation with this phrase, they made their father drink. Um, a better translation for this Greek language would be he got drunk with them. Or the NIV uh, translates verse 33, that night they got their father to drink wine. So the New King James kind of, ma kind of makes it a passive you know, step on lots. It wasn't passive. Obviously, he wasn't leading his daughters, and here they are, bummed out, and he's just going to get more bummed out. That's, you know, that's the lie about alcohol and drugs for the most part. You, know? you start in, you're all bummed out, and you think alcohol is going to get you out of it, only to know, if some of you study just a little bit, if you just Google it, you'll find out that alcohol is a depressant. So if you step into alcohol, and you're already feeling bummed out, it's just going to jack you up more. It's not going to take you out of it. It's just going to reduce your inhibitions, make you sadder, and lead you to do bad, worse things than when you were beforehand. Now, again, jot it down just for the sake of taking notes. But back in Genesis chapter 9, in verse 20, we, that's the first mention of drunkenness. Remember who it was? Say it out loud. Noah gets off the ark and plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk. And it leads to all kinds of bad stuff, if you recall. And there is an important principle in interpreting the scripture. It's known as the law of first mention. So the first time something's mentioned in the Bible, like Genesis has a lot of first mentions, the first time a word or a phrase is used in the Bible is very key because the rest of the Bible almost always will follow in the same pattern. Not exclusively, but most of the time. And it's usually the first mention of something usually is a, an important key in understanding the same thing later on in the revelation of scriptures. And when we studied the life of Noah, we found that there is a close relationship between intoxication and iniquity. And we learned back then that there's a close relationship between drunkenness and debauchery. 
Noah became naked, which the implication is there was a perversity about it. You know, his son comes in, exposes him. It's a horrible situation. When a person begins to lose their normal faculties through alcohol, all inhibitions and restraint go out the door. Drinking depresses a person, lowers inhibitions. I mean, really, if you think about it, you have a hard day at work and you just want to come home and you want to wind down and have a beer. Well, one of the reasons why you want that is because you know the effect of what it will do. And again, we don't need to rewrite the Bible. The Bible does not say that drinking is a sin. Having a beer or a glass of wine, that's not what the Bible teaches. Drunkenness is clearly a sin. However, is it wise? That's the real question to ask. Is it wise? Is it wise what you're choosing to do, even though the Bible doesn't forbid it or condemn it? Is it wise? Is it the right thing to do? Can you go without it? And here, this particular drunkenness, and you know, from my perspective, you know uh, where I come from. I, I, I almost, well, I, I did destroy my life. God rescued me, but alcohol wrecked me. And that's why a lot of people will just dismiss me. Well, you know, it's not as bad for me, Ed, and you know, that's your problem. You destroy, yeah, but the alcohol wrecks a lot of people. <laughs> drunkenness ruins a lot of lives. So it's not just an Ed thing. But from my perspective, where I sit, where I stand, for the rest of my life, I will beg you not to drink. I won't judge you if you do. That's not my business. I don't want to judge you. I don't want to condemn you. That's between you and the Lord. But I will beg you. And if it's not for you, it's for your kids. Do your kids really need that example? Let me ask you this. Which of your kids, because you know, the response was, I can handle my alcohol. I believe you. There's a lot of people I hung out with that could handle their alcohol. I couldn't. But a lot of guys I hung out with, they could. So you could say, I can handle it, Ed. Okay, let me ask you this. Which one of your kids can't handle alcohol? And your answer will probably be, I don't know. And you'd be right. And then my response to you is, and I don't want to find out either. If my kids ever get into something, I don't want it to be because of my example. To the best of my ability, certainly not perfect in areas, but I don't want it to be my example. I don't want anyone to experience the pain that I went through or I don't want anyone to have to look someone in the eye and, and see them cry or be in jail or whatever, whatever it might be. The first mention of drunkenness, there's nakedness and perversity. And now with Lot, it's worse. Just stay away from it. You can live without it. You can even go to my website. I wrote an article on this because it was such a big deal when I wrote that. And I think I, I titled it something like, is drinking wise or is it a sin? I think it's is drinking a sin. It's edtaylor.org. And I lay out in a much more detailed way that the right question to ask is not is drinking a sin, but is drinking wise. And then I make a case of just how wise it is, unwise it is, I should say, of just staying away from it. You, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to, there's not going to be any sin staying away from alcohol. But the possibilities, I mean, again, who's the determination of drunkenness anyway? Is it you? Is it me? Is it the state of Colorado, 0 0.08? Is it another state, 0 0.10? Like, wh who, who determines what drunkenness is anyways? And let the Lord lead you on this. Sin is so disgrading, and don't leave room for it. Don't give any provision 
for the flesh. And this is what it says. They're in a cave, all alone. I mean, he at one time couldn't find enough room for himself and his livestock in all that land, Genesis 13. And now he's confined to a hole in a hill, a cave, where he had hardly had room to turn around with nothing but his two daughters that are twisted in their thinking. And they've come to conclude that, remember, this is very similar. The thinking is, remember Elijah was in a cave, depressed and discouraged because of what Jezebel had said. And remember what he said? He said that I'm all alone. It's only me. And now Lot's daughters, and this Elijah will be later, but here, previous to Elijah, Lot's daughters, they're in a cave going, we're the only ones here. We're the only ones that can create and lead and continue the lineage of our dad because everything we lost is in Sodom, including mom. Caves, discouragement, depression, alcohol, they're just all mixtures for sin. Notice what happens in verse 36. Thus both of the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. They both were incestually impregnated. The firstborn bore a son called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the people of Ammon to this day. And you Bible students know that the Moabites and the Ammonites will fight Israel the rest of their lives. They gave birth to enemies. But again... You guys that are Bible students, you can see the grace of God in this because you remember a famous Moabitess. Her name is Ruth. And so even so, as we talk about such things and we're forced to face our past or maybe even our present today, something you need to repent of. And you look at your life and you go, look at what I've done. I'm beyond repair. I'm beyond God even loving me and caring for me and what am I doing in church and what am I, why do I have a, why do I even, I am beyond. No, no, even in the worst of sin, God can intervene and bring something good. He can work all things together for good. And you can't undo the things of the past, but you also don't have to live in the past. God is ready to deliver you if you will just take the way of escape. Just take the way of escape. Even with the temptation right now to condemn yourself, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. Take the way of escape. Even the temptation is, oh no, God will never love me. No, there is a way of escape. God does love you. Sin is only begotten son to die for you so your sins might be forgiven. You can live a life free of guilt, free of shame. And when the enemy comes against you to try to throw it against you and throw it back at you, you can hide in Christ and say, no, that was the old Ed. That was the old you. I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And even in this horrific, horrific sin of Lot, of where his family ends up, there is still hope. There is still hope in Christ. Can I show you what I mean by that? Would you turn over to 1 Corinthians 13? And uh, Henry and the team can come back up. just want to read this as they're coming up here. Let's just remember the agape love of Christ. 
Let's just remember if we need to attach this section, 1 Corinthians 13, to a person. We need to attach these truths to our own lives. We need to put them, the banner over our life. The enemy's been condemning you, pressing in against you. You got drunk and partied last night. You found yourself in trouble because you decided to go that way and this way. Listen, this is what the word of the Lord says in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Verse 5, love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And listen, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, and read those next one with me. Hopes all things. Let me, I'm going to lead you up to that. I want you to read that phrase with me. Bears all things, believes all things. Say it out loud. Hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So let that resonate in you today. Whether you need it now or in the future, love hopes all things. You're not beyond repair. The blood of Jesus Christ could forgive even that. And if you have yet to sin, like maybe you're planning something right now, you know, you're planning sin, you're planning, you're thinking about what you can get away with, how close to the edge you can before you fall off. Listen, repent now. Just stay away from the edge and come back. Seek to lose your life so you might gain it in Christ. And let Lot, you let Lot be a warning to you, but also obey Jesus, okay? You remember Lot's wife. Jesus doesn't say remember Lot. He says you remember Lot's wife. And from Lot's wife, you'll be able to remember that whole family knowing that God is abundantly gracious and merciful. Even in judgment, there's mercy. So Father, I pray for those that might be experiencing the consequences of their sin right now, that even in consequences, there's mercy. I think of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet even in the judgment, there's mercy. I think of Lot going to Zoar and then he finally gets to the mountains and he hides in a cave and his, all of the drunkenness. All, I mean, they didn't have anything, but they found money for, for alcohol. And, and all of that, Lord, I just, even in judgment, there's mercy. Because even with the Moabites, you could turn it around with Ruth. So I just pray for that work, God, that turning things around and not even, not even just this rank sin like Lot, but the believers among us that, that are compromising, that are holding back on you, Lord, that are withdrawing or resisting or walking away, running away, wandering away from you. I pray that you would bring them back with your cords of love. Just, just in a real way, God, real substantive change. Not just because we got busted, Lord. Not just because, um, you know, we had some Bible study. But because of your love for us. You're worthy of our surrender and sacrifice to you. And Lord, even those, nobody needs to get busted to make great change. Nobody needs to be in a place or a position of guilt and shame to repent. And so if you're here tonight, I would just invite you to repent. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Give him your life. This theme we've been, since the last weekend, two weeks ago, we, we introduced that song, Resurrender. It's like a word that replaces rededicate. Really, I like it better than rededicate. That sense of resurrender, offering yourself to, to the Lord, presenting yourself a living sacrifice. I mean, it's a word. If you want to see revival, it's going to start in our own hearts. If we want to see what God wants to revive, your walk with him. He wants to revive your marriage. He wants to revive your singleness. He wants to revive your faith. He wants to revive your purity. You think about what needs life that had life before. And he, like he is ready. Are you ready to surrender and to re-surrender and to press in and to choose to obey him? Don't respond, I cannot. Don't respond, I will not. But rather respond, here I am, Lord. I have sinned against a holy and a righteous God. I've sinned, David said. Not I cannot, I will not, but I've sinned. Freedom are in those words. Anyone here that would say, yes, Ed, I need to follow Jesus. Would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit, you would respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. God bless you guys. I recognize on the radio, on, on the online or downstairs, I don't see you. So you don't get a God bless you or an acknowledgement. But I'm telling you, God acknowledges you and he sees you. But we like to acknowledge in the room, just so you know, the Holy Spirit's moving. Even when there's nobody responding, God is always moving. He's always at work. And God just loves you so much, he's drawing you to himself. It's time to come. It's time to obey. It's Because like, you can leave here and do the same old religious nonsense you've been living all this time and get to the same end. But it gets worse, doesn't it? It gets worse. It just doesn't get better without substantive repentance and change, godly sorrow. And so you guys that are responding, bless you as well. Just, just ask God to forgive you. If you're resurrendering, just say it. I'm, Lord, I'm back. I, I, where, what, what's happened to me? I'm back. You're praying to receive Jesus for the first time, then admit that you've sinned against him. Say, God, I've sinned against you. And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus to live for me and die for me. He rose again from the dead. I follow him with all of my life. And just affirm that in your life. God, this is a high and holy moment. And so, Byron, you're over here. Can you pray for them? Who else? Um, Andy, right here, and then I just need one more, one more person, one more person, someone. Randy, come on up, I see you. So there's three right here. You guys are downstairs, come up after the service, because we can't see you down there. And I'm just going to acknowledge everyone that's by a distance. I just want you guys, I feel, I feel a real burden that you need to know physically you're not alone. So there's a hand on your shoulder, or there's a presence next to you physically you're not alone it's not just spiritually but it's physically like maybe i just feel i just get this picture like some of your some of the difficulty in your life has been because of people and so god is just speaking to you right now i i, I got this like this vision of you know a, a a time when it was just barren and empty and nobody was there and now it's just filled with people like maybe it was it's a room 
just fill with people, but you're in that room. So just let the tangible touch of that pastor, that elder, minister to you right now. And those of us just need to be reminded of the touch of the Lord in our lives, His faithfulness, His care and concern for us. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.